Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zanian as he reads from social media, his own spoken word projects, and plays music for you Spotify premium listeners. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. We'll have your words from social media and much more right after this word from audible.com. Jeff Corey made a name for himself in the 1940s as a character actor in films like Joan of Arc and The Killers. Everything changed in 1951 when he refused to name names and was promptly blacklisted. He embarked on a career as one of the industry's most revered acting instructors. His memoir, Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, written by Jeff Corey with his daughter Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that continually tests his ability to forgive and forget. In The Borrowed Souls, written by Paul B. Kohler, Jack Duffy will be compelled to make decision after decision about who gets to live and who will lose their soul. In war-torn Okinawa, there is the story told by a young kamikaze pilot only moments before flying his fighter plane into the side of an American battleship. I know why the waters of the sea taste of salt is written by the poetic master of modern-day horror, Steve Vernon. All three of these great audiobooks are narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to them today by visiting audible.com. And we are back. So today we have four good postings from Facebook. The first one uh, being about someone, uh, about Animal Crackers, the movie, the Groucho Marx, Marx Brothers classic. And also it's a little bit uh, too about Margaret Dumont. Um, And it's very good. That's by Rodney. And... Also, one, uh, another one also by Rodney, which is about Hemingway. And then there will be one called So Long Charlie, which is about the death of the family pet. And the last one uh, is by Buck. And, uh, oh, by the way, the So Long Charlie is written by Whitney. Wanted to give her credit there. The next one will be um, Our Old Piano, and that's by Buck. And that's about the piano of the family. Let's see. Let's start out. We're going to start out today um, with Animal Crackers, and that's by Rodney. And uh, I watched a good handful of 
and was a fan of of the Marx Brothers movies. Uh, I didn't know much about the actors in them. And Rodney is kind enough to uh, talk a little bit about that. This is Animal Crackers. Animal Crackers by Rodney. You guys know I have this Marx Brothers obsession. So last night I watched my favorite. Criterion has a festival of some of the movies up and also a great little featurette of home movies and the Groucho interview from Dick Cavett. Just wonderful. Anyone who wants to know what an interview can be and how lame talk shows are right now should watch Cavett. So, okay. Animal Crackers is hands down my favorite Marx Brothers. Humor is a really personal thing, and while all the films make me laugh, Animal Crackers does it the most and best for me. But look, if you ever want to treat, and trust me, this is hard to do, but just watch Margaret Dumont. Okay, there is this story, and it started with Groucho, that she never understood the jokes. I think it's bunk. Okay, first off, she wasn't born with that stick up her butt. She was born Daisy Baker in Brooklyn, and by the time Sam Harris hooked her up with the boys in 1925, she'd already been on the stage since she was a kid. Her first show was in 1902. She left showbiz from 1910 to about 1918. She got married to John Mahler, a wealthy industrialist and sugar heir. He died in the 1918 pandemic, and after that, she returned to the stage. She must have been wealthy. The point is, she knew what she was doing, and she'd been around. She knew exactly what she needed to do as a straight man to land a joke. But if you watch her in films, she breaks constantly. She's hilarious. She doesn't even try to hide it. I have a picture from the bridge scene, which is, for my money, the single funniest thing ever filmed. She, Harpo, and Chico are with Margaret Irving, another great actress. She has a terrific small scene later with Harpo. Boy, another thing about Dumont. Man, she was beautiful. Just look at her. She had a perfect figure and just radiant skin. Just a beautiful woman. I love this movie. One thing, though, Lillian Roth. Okay, I know Roth had a tragic life, and I feel bad about that, but... Okay, once, when I was in this terrible production of Dracula playing Harker, the virile young English lover, and that should tell you how bad this production was, the woman who played Mina opposite me... Okay, sometimes you see an actor and you get the sense that they practiced all their lines home with a mirror... And it was like that with this woman. She made exactly the same studied gestures every night. She never listened and never made eye contact. She stared at a spot in the center of my forehead. I got the idea that when we were in a scene, I could get her started and then walk off stage and she would continue the scene, waiting the appropriate time for my lines, not even noticing I was gone. I get the same idea from Roth. She acts so hard between her lines, I fear for her safety. Of course, she's playing opposite Hal Thompson, so... Cheapers. 
There were always these romantic leads in the early Marx Brothers shows, and sometimes I think they cast people just to distract the audience from how bad Zeppo was. Anyway, next time you watch Animal Crackers, focus on Dumont. She's a treasure. I have always loved all of the Ken Burns uh, documentaries that uh, get picked up for uh, PBS. And there was the current one now about Hemingway. Uh, I had no idea was even coming. But um, it's good because I got to learn more about Hemingway than I've ever known. Um, I'm certainly not as well-read as many people, but uh, when I think of Hemingway, I think of the movie I saw a good number of years ago called Islands in the Stream, which I think Hemingway wrote toward the end of his career, his life, basically. And the scene that I remember... I remember I remember it being a, a pretty good movie. Uh but the scene that I remember that just sticks in my mind even till today uh is where his wife in real life Trish Vanderveer she is walking toward his home and he's about to meet her I think for the first time if I remember correctly. And he sees her from out of his window and he quick rushes to the bathroom and shaves off his beard. I thought, man, that's a powerful little scene. And uh, so that's what I remember about Hemingway. I should remember a lot more, but I don't. But this is by Rodney and it's about Hemingway. More about Hemingway by Rodney. A long time ago when I first started a life where I knew I would be bumping into famous people I admired. I made a rule, and that rule was to never meet anyone I idolized. For the most part, I've stuck to that rule, and the couple of times I haven't, I've been painfully reminded why I made that rule in the first place. Like many of you who are watching the excellent Ken Burns Hemingway piece on PBS, the second episode was painful to watch. Focusing on his obsession with bullfighting his clumsy attempts at being a socially woke writer and his marriages, it is easy to feel admiration waning. I had to turn away, often during the bullfighting footage. Such cruelty is impossible to watch. Viewing a chronology of Hemingway's personal life, especially in today's political climate, it is easy to have the same feelings. There are things that Burns, as excellent a historian as he is, is glossing over. Hemingway's mother was much more of a monster than she is portrayed. She and his father equally fed a madness that must have been close to intolerable for a child, especially in the time and social strata when it took place. Burns doesn't mention that. When Hemingway's father committed suicide, his mother's gesture of maternal empathy was to send Hemingway the gun his father used with a note. I thought you should have this. Hemingway's wounding in the First World War was also a source of deep and confusing pain for him. He would often bluster about it and embellish the nature of it, 
but inside he knew it was nothing heroic. He was just standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he nearly died for it. Hemingway had a lifelong fascination with gender identity. It was his obsession. It went beyond his mother dressing he and his sister alike as children. In the way that he constantly posed the question, What is a man? He equally and as often asked, What is a woman? He often wrote about men and women switching roles. His son Gregory, later his daughter Gloria, was trans and went back and forth several times between genders. A lot has been written about Hemingway's sexual preference, and I think that's a stupid and superficial path to go down. It is a part of how we confuse gender identity with sexual preference, which are two different things. When you read a lot about Hemingway, as I have, and you read all his writing, as I have, Here's what clarifies the greatest misconception about both his work and his life. When he wrote about bullfighting, he did not see himself as the bullfighter. He saw himself as the bull. He saw a rain of spears and swords piercing your skin in a celebration of madness as the human condition. When he entered the newsroom at the Kansas City Star at the age of 17, he was a young bull raised in an idyllic pasture raised to believe he was the ultimate source of power in the universe. Bulls entering the arena do not understand what the people are cheering for, and right to the last, they probably never do. Rather than asking yourself why a man, who could write women so beautifully, seemed to treat his wives so terribly, ask yourself this, why does a man who could have any woman in the world, and knows his nature so well, continue to marry. Not only marry, but marry strong, challenging women. Why? Why would a man so obviously exceptional spend his life searching for normalcy? Why would a person so perceptive about life write so much about death? We cannot understand today the effect of World War I on the young men of the world. Young men prior to World War I saw war, conflict, as a rite of passage a proving ground. They saw it in hand-to-hand -hand glimpses of glory, sword fights, a noble death. The kid who Hemingway was went off to that war, looking to prove something to himself. He was a big kid, but he had poor eyesight. He was popular and witty, but he was shy and awkward. He saw his father, his model for masculinity as, at once, a strong and sure outdoorsman and a weak and willing victim his mother, a source of love, vitriol, and judgment. His family lived the life of a proper turn-of-the-century American success story, while inside those flowered Victorian walls lived the silent ravages of genetic mental illness. He needed a persona to prove himself he was a man, or even something worth being. What he got was wholesale mechanized senseless slaughter, Men died without even the celebration of a single trumpet. There was no glory, only hunger and cold, insanity and blood. That sounds like a cliché now, but trust me, it was a surprise then. He was part of the medical corps, like my father, and as one of those, you don't see great acts of military glory. You see the aftermath. You see broken lumps of blood and bone, futilely begging for their mothers. 
he was 18. And then, while handing out chocolate before he could prove anything, he was blown into another understanding. Filled with metal, his legs useless, and then, again, shot being carried. A helpless, wounded target. No more a man than the bits of metal in his legs. The mud on his torn uniform. And then, when he returned home, he had never been a soldier. He was in the ambulance corps. He had never held a weapon or fired a shot. He was blown up handing out chocolate. Who was he? More important, what was he? There was no mental health support in 1918. There was no diagnosis of bipolar disorder or manic depression. PTSD didn't exist. You came home and you were expected to be a man. What I am saying is, before you pass judgment, take yourself out of the political flavor of the month club and look at the whole person. As I said, I like this documentary, but there are things I take exception to. In this second episode, the portrayal of his second wife, Pauline, as a poor, tragic victim, it'd be fun to ask Hadley about that. All of Hemingway's wives, with the possible exception of Hadley, were intelligent, calculating, and powerful people who stalked Hemingway and won him by exploiting his weaknesses. And all of them, again except maybe Hadley, got exactly what they wanted out of those relationships. Pauline, Martha, and Mary were all bullfighters who knew exactly where to put the sword for a clean kill. Here's the bottom line. The experience of a person is always Rashomon. Anyone writing about Hemingway is filtering it through their own experience, and anyone reading is doing the same. It is all conjecture. What is not conjecture is that Ernest Hemingway is the single most significant American writer and one of the greatest human writers ever. Mark Twain carved a hole in a wall. Hemingway built the frame, the door, walked through, did the electrical, the plumbing, and built all the furniture. If you deny that, you are ignorant of his work. This is the difficulty we live with today. I am so happy that we are reevaluating the way our society runs, the acceptance of marginalized groups, fair treatment of minorities and especially women, compassion, empathy. This is all so wonderful. Vengeance? Human, but not as wonderful. I remember a very long time ago, when I was a child in Catholic school and during catechism, a nun was talking about how the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Savior was necessary to get into heaven. I raised my hand. This was maybe second grade, and I asked, What about if there is someone and they are on an island someplace and they have never heard of Christ, but they are still a good person? That person never gets into heaven? And the nun sternly replied, No. And I said, That isn't fair. The nun walked to my desk and slapped me as hard as she could. She sent me home and told me not to return without my parents. A side note. In second grade, that was the third time I had been expelled. God and I have a troubled history. I worry now that we are committing a form of selective cultural suicide. It is happening with art exclusively. We are selecting historic figures from the arts and judging them under standards they never knew or 
would have ever understood, and then dismissing their contributions entirely. Speaking of Christ, I have never understood the resurrection because I have always believed the important aspect of Christ was not his divinity, but his humanity. The fact that he could say what he said and live how he lived and still bleed and die says to me that all of us are capable of being the child of God. If he was special, it means nothing. All great artists create, not from their strengths and successes, but from their pain and weaknesses. It is not that they are not like us, but that they are so like us. Looking for only likable, relatable figures as artists is the quickest road to non-art and non-growth. Probably Hemingway's worst novel, hands down, is Across the River and Into the Trees. I have read it and got through it. That shows you how much of a fan I am. It is a terrible novel written at a difficult time in his life. It received disastrous reviews and was probably the lowest point in his career. Hemingway's reaction was to isolate himself, sit down in less than two months, write The Old Man and the Sea, one of the single greatest pieces of fiction. I believe it is here that Hemingway finally makes sense of his own existence, of bull and bullfighter, of old man and legendary fish. He is, at once, the old man, the fish and the sea, one, locked in a battle that is ultimately futile, death and the only triumph is to find the will and beauty in the next day. All of us are the old man, the fish and the sea, and the best great art can do is remind us. Artists do not create brilliance despite their flaws, but because of them. Before you throw stones, pick up the stone and look at it. Really look at it. I think most, or maybe even all of whom, all of you folks who know me, know that I'm a real dog lover, even though I don't currently have one. But this next piece is, it's a eulogy for a dog. And that may sound silly, but a member of the family, whether they're dogs or people, should be eulogized. And that's the way I feel about it. And this is about, uh, this is by Whitney. It's about uh, her dog, Charlie, who passed. And uh, it's amazing. I, I subscribe to one of the groups uh, in Facebook that's about golden retrievers. And this is where I found this posting. I think you'll like it. So Long, Charlie, by Whitney. He gave us his absolute all. We loved him fiercely, living fully in each moment. He loved us and never wasted time being afraid of tomorrow. He showed us how to relax and have fun and was our protector. He made our days brighter, our tennis ball catching and squeaky toy loving snugglebug. Could hear a cheese wrapper from outside of the house. He was a peanut butter licking, river loving, boat riding, side by side shotgun riding, 
best travel buddy, beach runner, and swimming fool. He was everything and more. How do we go on without him? He fought hard to stay with us, and we fought just as hard. We enjoyed sunset rides with the wind in our face, barking at every dog along the way. Today is such a special day, you see. Our beautiful golden boy, our baby, turned 11. We sang to him at midnight and told him of how he saved us and that his job was complete. He leaned into our faces with such love. We prayed that the Lord would peacefully take him from our arms into his. And he did just that. An hour after midnight, he went peacefully in his sleep while holding his daddy's hand. He waited until we both closed our eyes before he drifted away. How sweet to drift away on the same day that amazing creature drifted into this world. Our sweet Charlie, deeply loved, completely spoiled and missed beyond words. You can rest now. Happy heavenly birthday, my sweet boy. We love you more. Please say a prayer for us. This is so hard. We are completely heartbroken. I think a few weeks back, uh, there was a posting that my friend Rodney had that I read uh, about his grandmother's piano. This is a little bit like that. And it's by Buck. And it's about the piano that's been in the family for years, I'm sure. And and uh, how they felt about uh, maybe getting another one. This is pretty nice. I think you'll like this. Our Old Piano by Buck I am a practical man. Though I married for love, I was also careful to latch on to someone whose faith, humor, tastes, and tolerance for tomfoolery mirrored mine. She also had her own car, and, even better, her own piano. All of those attributes survived the 61 years we've been together. Well, I did persuade her to trade her Ford for a Chevy. Until today. This afternoon, we were given news that we've been expecting. Her beloved piano can no longer be tuned and should be put to rest. In a house where the joy of hearing music made equals the joy of making it, this was not welcome news. More surprising was learning that they're not even making spinets like this one anymore, and that the piano business itself is no longer thriving. Think about that. Once upon a time, hardly an American home was without a piano. It's estimated that fewer than 20% do now. No surprise, I suppose, since few kids have time for lessons anymore. We haven't decided how we're going to deal with this yet, but we will have a piano again. Maybe it'll just be one of those things that sound like a piano but look like a steamer trunk. 
that would restore the music but leave a space where once stood a pleasing piece of furniture. It will also leave a space on the wall in need of repainting. Our daughter, who's never known a day when this piano wasn't where she could slam out a few choruses of chopsticks, insists that we keep it just for old time's sake. Maybe convert it to a wine bar or desk or something else that still needs to be dusted. Stay tuned. What I'm doing, uh, instead of playing something from the archives today, what I'm doing is is I'm telling you what's going to start happening probably next week. And here it is. Um, next week, I'm going to start playing music from Spotify. Now, this was something... This was something that uh, I did once when I changed the format of the show, and I thought, oh, no way, this just doesn't make any sense. But I think it might actually be helpful because the new format is working, but what's not working is the fact that I can't always find what I'm looking for if it's specific. So what I'm running into is, you know, not having a very long show and I want it to be at least 25 minutes to 35 minutes. The average is around half an hour. And I just, I'm not sure right now that I can maintain that. So what I want to do is some, something that I've kind of been interested in and that's play music and uh, music not programmed by anybody but me. It's it's like uh, like a lot of DJs want to program their own music and play what they want to play instead of what the boss wants them to play. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play one or two songs. If it if it's a day that I just don't have the time or I don't have the material from Facebook to read you, I'm going to play music. And this is what you need to know. It's for Spotify premium members, okay? If you're not a Spotify premium member and do not wish to become one, all you're going to hear is 30 seconds of a song, okay? Now, I'm obviously, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to advertise for Spotify, but I just want to tell you, what has to go on, all right, in order for me to, to play these songs. And obviously I have this huge catalog of songs to choose from because it's Spotify and they have everything. So uh, you can either become a Spotify member for $9.95 a month or uh, you can skip uh, that section of the show. That's it. You know, if you want to listen to 30-second samples of each song, that's fine, too. But that's what I'm going to start probably next week. I'm going to say maybe next week, okay? But besides that, we are at the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends because we're always looking for new ones. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks Anchor.fm for the opportunity. I greatly 
appreciated. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Bye now. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.